following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, good morning, and please come on back to your seats. Yes, we are few in number this morning, but we are strong in spirit. We're going to pray for those who are, are not gathered with us. Uh, many are... are either sick or visiting uh, family and friends in other churches or supporting family and friends in other churches. So we're going to pray for, for those who are not here. And then we'll turn our attention to the Word. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this, uh, this gathering of your saints to hear from your Word and to be instructed and taught by your Spirit. I pray now, God, that you would Settle our minds and hearts and, and free us from distraction and, uh, and wandering and fleeting thoughts. Instead, Lord, give us diligence and focus and attention to your word and to the grace we receive in the gospel. Lord, I pray for those who are sick this week, uh, my family and others who are recovering from illnesses or, or caring for those who are ill. God, we ask for first encouragement and comfort, and secondly, for health. Lord, we know that all things are in your hands. And so may this time of sickness be used even to edify and encourage your saints and cause a humble dependence on you for all things, especially our health. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are traveling or visiting with other churches or family. Lord, even now, encourage them. Remind them that they are of Christ and in Christ. Lord, we ask, God, that you would be with our brother Bill as he preaches at Berea. We pray, Lord, for Jake and Amy and Arthur as they visit with their family's church to encourage his dad as he preaches. Lord, we pray, God, that you would remind us all of the grace we have in the gospel and that all of the churches that call themselves Christian would this morning preach a gospel from your Bible that gives life to those who hear. God, we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 21. We are just two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, two weeks out from finishing the Gospel of John, our study of the Gospel of John. We began the Gospel of John. Not many of you were with us when we began that. We began the Gospel of John many years ago and took a, a hiatus there in the middle of chapter 12 and began several months ago to pick up the remainder of the gospel. This, of course, is John's letter to Christians who are aware of the other gospels, who know well the teaching of the apostles and Jesus, and need hope to believe and to carry on. The theme of John's gospel has been belief in the Son of God. This has been his point the whole time. For instance, notice in, in chapter 20, verse 30, that he says, Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. All the things written in the Gospel of John are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the theme of John's Gospel, the reason and the purpose of his writing, is so that you would when reading and hearing his teaching, his record of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. The goal for John is that you would believe and have life in Christ. So verse 1 of chapter 21 and onward really consists of the epilogue, the ending of the book of John, where he 
really ties everything and concludes everything that has been said. All the things that have been mentioned kind of find their ending and conclusion here in the Gospel of John. And we're going to begin by reading in verse 15, part of which we covered last week as James preached for us, down through verse 24. And we're going to save verse 25 on its own for next week. So verse 15 of chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, they being Jesus and the disciples, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but... When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death was he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Jesus saw him, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Again, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. There's a story, I think, well attested to in history of the second and third president of the United States, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. They were friends originally as they came together in the 18th century in the Constitutional Convention they and the other founders worked on and created not only the Declaration of Independence, but also our Constitution. But these two friends became really bitter rivals, political enemies, and even their friendship ultimately was put in jeopardy because of political differences. Yet towards the end of both of their lives, their friendships were rekindled. Adams reached back out to Jefferson and Jefferson wrote back. Jefferson, of course, lived here in Virginia and Adams in Massachusetts. And they began another 14 years of correspondence between one another. Adam and Jefferson's friendship were kindled. And then on July 4th, incidentally enough, in 1826, 50 years after the independence of the United States, they both lay dying in their deathbed. And Jefferson still lives are the last recorded words that we have of John Adams. I think to some degree, as a bit of disappointment and poke at his once rival turned friend, but probably still a bit of political envy and jealousy. Of course, he was wrong. Jefferson actually had died five hours before. The point here is that both men Great men, with all of their faults but all of their accomplishments, on their deathbed, as they considered their legacy, as they thought about what it meant to be alive 50 years after the founding of a new republic, to think about all that they have done and gone through, and even now considering their own fate that lied before them on the very eve of their death, their minds, at least John Adams' minds, turns to Jefferson, and he thinks of his rival, and his friend. 
And of course, we may interpret that all sorts of ways. But the idea that I want to draw out here is that on the, on the cusp of death, what is charged for each one of us is not the consideration of another person's life. It's not what God has done in someone else's life or what someone else has accomplished in their own ministry or in their own life, but what God has done through you and you have done for God. This is Peter's charge from Jesus to not consider the life of someone else. Instead, consider his own life as Jesus commissions him to ministry. And not just ministry, to feed and tend to the shepherd, to the flock of God, but to ultimately lay down his life as the chief shepherd had once done. Their minds should be focused on the task that is at hand as they consider what God wants them to do and what awaits their fate as they are faithful. Let's look at the text here and we'll see just a brief overview of what John intends for us to see in this last bit of his gospel. This, of course, is after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has appeared to his disciples twice already and they are still somewhat despondent, out back fishing, not sure quite what to do. They haven't received a commission quite yet from the Lord. Jesus will still spend 40 days and 40 nights with them. We read about this in the book of Acts, the very next book in the New Testament, before he commissions them, Acts 1-8, to go and be witnesses, and then ascends to the Father. But at this point, Jesus has breakfast with them. He eats, he cooks the fish that he helped catch, and he eats breakfast. And then he has a conversation with Peter, a public conversation, but one directed towards Peter, And he restores Peter to ministry. Peter, remember, had failed Christ. He had denied Christ three times. He denied Christ around a charcoal fire as Jesus was being tried before uh, the Jews. And he had abandoned him as he was led to the cross. But now around another charcoal fire, Jesus renews and restores and redeems Peter from that failure. This speaks of the great love that Jesus has for Peter despite the failing of love that Peter had once had for Jesus. The commission to Peter is to feed and to tend to the sheep of Christ. He's no longer a fisherman, but a shepherd now. And he has been called to the work of shepherding the flock of God, caring for, tending to, and feeding with his word the flock that Jesus gives to his charge. And Peter will remember this calling as he writes to his own congregation in 1 Peter chapter 5 and charges the elders there among them to shepherd the flock of God, to do so with humility and with eagerness, not with domineerance or with pride, because he is to model the chief shepherd who lays down his life in humility for the sheep. But Jesus goes on, and in verse 18 we see that Jesus tells of Peter's coming death. He says, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want. This is in contrast to the freedom that we often experience in our life as youth. The older we get, the more responsibilities we have, the less freedom and flexibility in our lives. As you grow, you get a job, you no longer can take random vacations and road trips across the country. Unless, of course, it's a pandemic and you work from home, and then this illustration doesn't hold up. When you have kids or a pet, you no longer can leave without first caring for the responsibilities at home or making arrangements for their coming along with you. Certainly, as you have responsibilities and commitments to a body of Christ, your absence from the body over time can harm that. And so there's a greater responsibility that comes with growing up, with maturing. Borrowing this idea, Jesus says at one time, Peter, you were free to go and to do whatever you wanted. He's not here just speaking of youthfulness, but actually speaking of the freedom that comes when you are outside of the bonds and the responsibilities of Christ's charge. 
But he says, there will be a day when you are old, where you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This isn't simply saying you're going to be old and have to have help with you, that someone's going to have to dress you and take you wherever you need to go. But rather, this is a very clear and direct reference to crucifixion. The idea of stretching out your hands is what crucifixion began with. They take the cross beam of the cross and they tied it to the back. And that's what Jesus had to carry all along the Via Dolorosa to Golgotha. Peter himself will stretch out his hands and be tied and will have to be carried along the way to his place of crucifixion. He understood this, and verse 19 makes it clear. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus tells Peter that he will be in bondage and even he will die. And the charge here at the end of verse 19 then is to follow me. Now this is a peculiar sort of calling, isn't it? To lead first with the death of Peter and then invite him to follow Jesus. Why not first, Jesus, lead with the invitation to follow me? Peter would have quickly said, okay. But when the charge is first, Peter, you're going to suffer the same kind of death I did. You too will be crucified. And then the charge is given to follow me. Naturally, we'll see some hesitancy. In verse 20, he turns and sees the other disciple and he asks, what about this man? This other disciple, the beloved disciple, remember, is John, the one who's writing this gospel. So he looks at John and he says, well, what about John? What's his fate going to be? And Jesus, of course, rebukes Peter and says, what is that to you? If I want to keep him alive until the second coming, I will do it. It's, it's of no matter to you. You follow me. That's an emphatic following. Your translation may have an exclamation point behind it. It is you must follow me. The call is to Peter to follow Jesus even and especially to death, the same kind of death. Whether or not John is martyred for the faith or he dies an old man is none of Peter's business. It remains for Peter to follow Christ and to do so on his own. John, of course, ends his letter here by making a clarification. Jesus doesn't say, of course, that John's not going to die, but that if it's God's will for that to happen, so be it. <coughs> and so he writes in verse 24. <coughs> Excuse me. We know <coughs> that the testimony is true. Let me give three points briefly this morning about the text. And may God be gracious to me as I now battle coffee. In fact, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, my, my, my words and throat are feeble. And your word is powerful. God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, help me and help your people. Amen. The first thing I want us to see is that Peter is called to faithful ministry in life and faithful witness in death. He's going to be called to be a faithful shepherd in life and a faithful witness in death. His job as a disciple isn't over. It won't be over when Jesus ascends to the Father. It continues on for the rest of Peter's life, to be a faithful shepherd. He's called to shepherd and to feed the flock of Christ. But more than this, he's called to be a faithful witness in his shepherding and in his death. The chief shepherd is modeled in the under-shepherd's care of the flock, in the feeding and the caring for of his people, and is ultimately modeled in Peter's life by his own death. In this case, modeled after the same likeness of Jesus' death, crucifixion. 
We have to take this charge to follow Jesus into death in conjunction with the calling to shepherd the flock of God. The two really shouldn't be separated as we consider these words. Because part of Peter's redemption includes not only his restoration to ministry, to care for and to teach and to be an apostle among the the burgeoning church, but actually it is to go and trod the same road that his Savior had once walked. He must not only feed and shepherd Christ's flock by modeling the prophetic ministry of Christ's work, that is the word of God that goes forth, preaching and declaring and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus to all who would hear, but he is also called to the faithful obedience that is required of him until the very end. The difference is, this time Peter will not falter in his obedience to Christ like he had in the court. This time he will faithfully obey and submit himself to the cause of Christ to the very end. Legend tells us that Peter indeed was crucified and in fact had requested to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the exact same manner of his Savior. Now whether that's apocryphal or not, I don't know. But indeed we understand that Jesus' work here is calling Peter as part of his redemption to follow in the very same footsteps of his Savior. The redeeming and the renewing aspect of Jesus' calling to Peter and his ministry means for Peter, he must follow to the very end. Recall earlier, as Jesus speaks to the disciples during the Last Supper, and he tells them that he's going to prepare a place for them. And all the disciples are wondering, can we go with you? And he says, No, you can't go where I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Peter, of course, says something that he shouldn't have. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. For where I am going, you cannot come, but later you will. I believe Jesus is speaking about what he's mentioning here in verse 18 and 19, that Peter indeed will come and drink the cup Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, and Peter drinks the cup of the wrath of the world against Christ. Jesus does so sacrificially to provide an atonement that redeems Peter, and Peter does so to set an example for all those who would come before him. Peter is called to live a radically obedient life in light of the failing and in contrast to the failure of his obedience in the court. In the same way, you and I are called to live obedient lives that are so intent on following Christ that our lives and even our deaths ultimately glorify Him. That we, in some sense, even in our going to our deaths, model and picture and anticipate Christ. There is a faithful obedience required of each one of us that is impressed on our lives so intently and is made for us so purposefully that we are to live in such a way that even our deaths glorify Christ. Notice the wording in verse 19 when he says, this is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So it was not to glorify Peter. It was not to honor the church. It was to glorify God, Peter's crucifixion was. And so our own deaths following a life lived to the glory of God, also lifts and exalts Christ above all. We are called to live lives that are so intent on following Christ that even our deaths will glorify and speak to His name. The source of that faithful obedience, the source of the power that enables us to then go to our deaths willingly that glorify Christ, does not come from within, but it springs from our redemption and our reconciliation secured to us by the cross of Christ and confirmed for us by his resurrection. Peter receives the power to go to the cross like Christ has done, not from his own strength, which we know in the time of trouble will fail him, but in the strength the Lord provides. He has been redeemed and restored by Christ, and he has been confirmed in Christ by his resurrection because Jesus lives. Peter can be restored. Because Jesus died for his sins, he can go to his own cross, forgiven. This is where the power comes from. In other words, just as Peter's call to feed the sheep and the power to do this 
flowed from his renewed and restored love of Christ, do you love me? Yes. Our own call to faithfulness must find its source in our own love for Christ. We, in many ways, are like Peter, feeble and frail and unable to meet the standard that God puts on us, and we often will fall short of that work. But when we are restored and redeemed and we see in the cross our own renewal to the work and the purpose that God has for each one of our lives and our lives collectively as a church, we love Him and we move forward in consequence of that love. So the question remains then, how can your death glorify God? How do we think about our death, as morbid as it may seem, as a means by which God is continued to be glorified? Well, our death glorifies God when our lives glorify God. If our lives are spent aiming at the central target of the glory of God, then in our deaths we will see the the exaltation of Christ. And yes, though many of us may not actually become martyrs or be asked to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ in the same way Peter and, of course, countless others have done, Listen, friends, our deaths are made to glorify Christ because our lives as Christians and disciples are characterized by or should be characterized by a total commitment and sacrifice for Christ. What it means to be a disciple is means that we are willing to lay down our lives for whatever cause Christ calls us to. We are willing to live as sacrifices for the glory of God. Paul picks up this theme in Romans chapter 12, that we are are to be living sacrifices, crawling up on the altar to be consumed by the Lord. Our lives are living sacrifices, and this is our spiritual worship, he says. So our lives are a foreshadowing of our death in which Jesus is glorified. And by death, we don't simply mean in the kind of death. Many of us, I pray, may go faithful, peaceful, surrounded by loved ones, though this may not be the case for all of us. Yet it is the ending to our earthly lives, marked by sacrificial love for Jesus, fervent care and compassion for His kingdom, and faithful obedience to His word that typifies all that makes Christ glorious. And so when our life glorifies God, then in our death, He is crowned king. Paul tells this as much in Philippians when he tells us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. How in the world can dying be gain unless our lives are centrally characterized by living for Christ? If to live is Christ, then to die is gain. We gain what we most prize in this life, Christ. That's what it means to be a faithful and devoted Christian. No matter what kind of death we end up dying, martyrdom or peaceful, our deaths will glorify Christ when it is the end of the earthly life characterized by one that is lived for his glory above all things. And so friends, let us live as though we would die for Christ. Let us live that we would die for Christ This very moment, let us live that we would die for Christ. Not because we may earn some special blessing in heaven or have a bigger room in the mansion or an extra jewel in our crown, but because He has died for us. It is He who has set the example, who has gone forth in our place so that we may, in laying down our own life for His cause, bring glory and honor to Him above all things. If you live as though you would die at any moment for Christ, live in the reality that He has died for you, you bring glory to Christ. You bring glory to Christ in this life now and in your death and in the life to come. I think that's the lesson for us as we consider Jesus' charge for Peter here in the last moments and days of His own being with His disciples. He calls him to follow into faithful obedience into death. Peter will remain alive after this for something like another 30 years. If we take this around the time of 33 AD, the writing of John sometime around 90 
A.D. That's 60 years. Peter, by this point, has been dead for close to 30, but has lived another 30 after this statement. So a long and fruitful ministry, but one eventually that lands him in Rome, crucified under Nero, one of the greater persecutors of the early church, and then his legacy then is recorded for us. His death glorifies Christ. So he was called to be a faithful shepherd in life, and we, like Peter, are called to be faithful witnesses in our death when with our life we live for the glory of God. The second point here is more of an excursus or, a, or an aside. It's, it's one on personal discipleship. Because <clears throat> there's an aside here that he makes when Peter in verse 20 turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loves, follows them. That's John. And Peter saw and said, what about this man? Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So I want to just speak here on, I think, what the lesson for us is. And that's a lesson about personal discipleship. I don't know the motivation behind Peter's question here. I don't know if it's out of curiosity. If he's genuinely interested in his, in his, in his brother John. Or maybe jealousy. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say John and Peter had a rivalry. Uh, but certainly they argued among each other all the time. <laughs> among who would be greater in the kingdom of God. And so perhaps there's something this, even on the cusp of his own repentance, that he would turn to John and say, well, what about John? So whether it's by curiosity or jealousy, we're not told. But through Peter's question, we're taught that there is a significant work and focus on personal discipleship. Jesus' answer is, consider what I have called you to do. You follow me. It's an emphatic statement meant to rebuke gently, but meant to rebuke Peter, as he has done many times before. Because, friends, it can be a very dangerous thing to compare ourselves to other people, especially as Christians. It's very dangerous and unwise to become overly concerned with the discipleship of another person. It's easy to try to stack ourselves up against the discipleship or the faith or the walk of another Christian, to look over and see how well they're doing in their family worship, how well they're doing in their Bible reading plan, how well they're able to take care of their children, how much they're able to share the gospel with other people, how fervently they're able to pray in public. This reminds me of a part of the story in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and specifically in The Horse and His Boy, there's a, a young woman named Erebus, and early on in the book, she escapes to spend time and to go with others to Narnia. And in order to escape, she has to trick a slave girl that goes out with her. And that slave girl ends up getting beaten as she's found and comes back without Erebus. And so Aslan, in, in, in the in his own way, really chastises her and helps her understand the consequences of her actions. And she asks what might happen to that slave girl afterward. What will become of her? Will, will, will any more harm come to her because of me? And of course, though her question seems innocent enough, I, I think it came from a, 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 pure, a place of pure interest. Aslan's answer to Erebus is similar to that of Christ. He says, Child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. And it's such a, a remarkable truth, isn't it? That not that we have to ignore one another or only look out for number one, but that the call of, of Christ, as much as it is corporate, is still very personal. Our faith, of, of course, it's not private, but it is, it is personal. And that each one of us have an experience, an individual call to the worth and the beauty and to the gospel of Christ. And it is to that calling to which we must first be diligent. No one is told any story but their own. Now, we may be able to see by God's grace how God is using others in our lives. And we may then be told their story after they are gone, but it is not our own business to care for and to be preoccupied with the story of others when God has called us to spend time on our own. 
Jesus says to Peter, what is it to you if he doesn't die until I return? You follow me. But the charge is the same to both you and I. To stop looking around and comparing ourselves to others. To take an over-interested concern in the life of others. Because with that comes usually judgment, comparison. This is not to ignore the the beautiful fellowship we, we share together in Christ. In our covenant, we commit to know each other well enough to be able to speak into each other's life. That's not what Peter is to reject here. We're not to neglect our care and service to one another as if we were to worry about ourselves only. That's not the attitude. See, Jesus has already commended the disciples to each other's care and accountability. Think about Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, or chapter 18. We are to consider each other's lives. We are to examine and judge one another by the word of God. We are to call each other out in sin. But when we compare ourselves and worry about what God is going to do with somebody else to the neglect of our own calling, that is when we've gotten ourselves in trouble. And so rather the lesson for Peter, and therefore for, for us, is that we must never neglect or attempt to lessen the the personal demand of Jesus on each of our lives individually. What we we do when we cast our eyes off of our particular calling onto others, to examine it, to question it, to judge it, and to compare it to our own, is we begin to lessen the demand of our personal calling. Jesus calls us, he demands us, He places a calling on us to live in a particular way. And when we compare ourselves with others or look to others, we begin to drift out of our lane. What he has for one of us may not be the same for another. Husbands, it's good to consider the marriages in our churches and to learn from one another. But it's dangerous when we can begin to compare our job as husbands and our success in our marriages to another. For we don't know what God has brought that marriage through to strengthen it or to cause it to be weak. Mothers, we must never look at the family across the aisle and think because their kids can sit quietly in service and yours can't, that you must be doing something wrong and you must be failing Christ. Friends, we have to consider what it means that God has called each one of us to his own particular purposes. Yes, we share in a mission together, but he has put each one of us on our own particular path that we are called to be faithful to. For some, like Peter, it will be faithful obedience to death. And some, like John, it will be faithful obedience into old age. One has nothing to do with the other, but you are called to follow Christ. So your personal discipleship, that is your following of Jesus, should not be hindered nor based on the personal discipleship of another Christian. Does that make sense? We have tools and helps and the community of faith strengthens our discipleship, but it is never hindered by or should be compared with or contingent upon the personal discipleship of another. God is faithful and will call us and sustain us in our own. So lastly, consider just the faithful witness to the truth of the word and the glory of Christ that John leaves us with in verse 23 and 24. He clarifies, of course, that Jesus doesn't say that that disciple, John, was not to die, that is, at all, but yet Jesus said that he was not to die if it's his will. So so he wants to clear that up. Apparently there's some rumor spreading that John wasn't going to die until the Lord comes again. And so John, of course, is in old age now, and so there's a fervor being picked up probably about what's going to happen when John dies. And there will be, of course, a disappointment when he does die and Jesus hasn't returned. So he clarifies. No, Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to die. He says, if it's my will that I don't die until he comes, what is that to Peter? He clears that up. But the point for that is this, in verse 24, this is that disciple who's bearing witness about these things, all of them, and that who has written these things And we know that the testimony is true. I'm not sure who the we is here, whether that's John's editorial we. It really means him, but he says it in that sense, the third person. He does that before. He calls himself the beloved disciple. Or maybe this is representative of John and maybe the other elders where he's at, probably Ephesus at this point. Or if this is some other 
church. But the idea here is that that John's testimony is true. And the things he has written is also a witness to the truth of the word and the glory of Christ. His whole goal, remember we said in the beginning, was to show that Jesus is the Son of God and that those who would see and know these things would come to believe and by believing have eternal life. So it's not simply that we are to be faithful witnesses even in our death as we are faithful in life. And it's not simply that we are faithful to our own calling of personal discipleship to Christ, but that we also must in all things be faithful witnesses to the truth of the word of Christ. That's central to our discipleship is Christ and his teaching, which glorifies Christ in all that we say and do. We know that his testimony is true. That the testimony of John's, because of his life and because of the record of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we know that it is true. And on the basis of that knowledge, have life in his name. And so the faithful witness, not only in our death and in our personal discipleship, but also be characterized in all of life, life is a witness to the truth of the word of God. Your testimony, friends, your testimony needs to be clear lest there be any confusion, and it needs to be confidently preached so that others may know that it is true. You're witnessing not just simply to the work of God in your life, but the truth of the Word of God that has gone out from you. Your teaching, your preaching, your living, all speaks to the faithfulness of God in His Word and to the glory of Christ, who is the Son of God. So I want to end with three, three exhortations that I think will help us move toward a more faithful witness. They are first examine, second resolve, third testify. In order to move toward a more faithful witness, first we should all examine our lives. So like Peter, what is the source of your obedience to Christ? Like, like where, where does your, your obedience, your willingness to read the Bible, to come to church, to do good, to serve others, to show up, where does that come from? There's lots of places where really that can come from, but there's only one place where Jesus says it must come from. It is from the love we have for him. Peter was called to tend to his sheep because he has been restored to the ministry through the love of Christ. He has been called to follow Jesus unto death and glorify him in his life and death because he has been called to love Christ. All of this must be the main source of our obedience in all things. Whatever else we find as a source, as a motivation, must be set aside. Only love for Christ can be the true obedience to our true source to our obedience for Christ. There are many good social tools that we can use that we can leverage that work for our good, but it is our love, centrally our love for Christ, which must motivate us to serve and obey Him. You cannot love Christ out of envy. You cannot love Christ out of deceit. You cannot love Christ out of a spirit of pride. You cannot love Christ out of a spirit of rivalry. You can only love and serve and obey Christ if your heart and affection has been set on Him and His glory alone. So friends, examine in your own heart and life what is the true source of your obedience why are you here? Why do you do what you've been called to do? Secondly, examine whether or not you can say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is, is the attitude of your living, in the small and the big, is the attitude of your living a, a worthwhile, headlong res- resolution to live in such a way that your life would be poured out as a drink offering? that you would be a living sacrifice so that even in your death, you would say, I have a greater reward that is Christ itself. That's the kind of witness that Christ compels us to live. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that? Is each decision in each day marked by a resolution to live in such a way that if you were to die, it would bring glory to Christ and you would gain fullness of joy in His presence. Lastly, examine whether or not you are more concerned with your brother or sister's discipleship than your own. This is easy for me in ministry 
to look at all the other successful churches, uh, the, the numbers in the seats, the numbers of baptisms, the kind of preaching, the faithful and powerful messages that others can preach. But that's not simply all. Motherhood, parenting, work, Christian living, Christian disciplines, all of these are easy ways for us to begin to become more concerned with our neighbor than with ourselves. So examine your own heart truthfully. Are you more concerned with your brother or sister's discipleship than your own? Again, to reiterate, it's not that we don't care about the discipleship of our brother and sister, but that we are not to be more concerned with it to the neglect of our own. You follow me, he says. So we have to examine, among other things, where the source of our obedience comes from. If we can live fully with the attitude with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that we with Peter would focus on God's calling for us rather than on his discipleship of another. Secondly, toward a more faithful witness, we must not only examine but also resolve. We know in many ways that Christ has called us to suffering. He's called us to obedience. And so, friends, let us resolve ourselves to that end. We may not know the way we would die, like Peter seems to know. We certainly do not know the hour of our death, but we know that death is inevitable. We know that each one of us will face judgment. And so we must resolve ourselves to live in such a way that when to die is gain, we will stand before judgment and we will, with Peter, hear, well done, good and faithful servant. When you resolve yourself to live the kind of life and prepare yourself to die the kind of death that honors and glorifies Christ, you will manifest great love and affection for Christ that others will come and welcome to Jesus. So begin with examination, but move towards resolving. Resolve yourself to not care more about the person's discipleship than your own. Resolve yourself to live in such a way that even if you were to die today, you know that your life has been poured out as an offering to Christ, as a living sacrifice and spiritual worship, and that your life has been given to Him, and you have earned and gained all things in your death. Resolve now to those ends. And lastly, friends, toward the more faithful witness, testify. That is, open your mouth and proclaim. Not only with your lives, display the kind of work that Christ has done in your hearts, but go in your life and preach and proclaim the gospel, whether it's to your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, your friends, your fellow students, your boss, your employers. Preach and testify to the truth of God. Like John, preach and write and record and say and declare all that you know about Jesus so that those who hear you and see you will come to know that your testimony is true. If your life is lived for the glory of God and you preach the glory and the gospel of Jesus, others will come to know the testimony that you say is true as God brings them to himself. But who ultimately is our lives and death to be known? Christ surely knows them. God surely knows them. But the testimony of our lives is not meant as a record for Jesus who knows all things, but it is meant as a record to those around us, to the world. Our lives are to testify to the world of the glory of God. In the midst of the world, our life and death glorifies God as a way to show and give thanks and to display the glory of God. If you are redeemed, your life must say, Jesus became like me, suffered in my place, rose from the dead, and by faith I have received the full assurance and pardon of my sins. And I now walk in faithful obedience, empowered by the Spirit. To the unbelievers, your life says that if you want to be freed from sin and bondage of slavery, if you want to walk faithfully with God and be reconciled, no longer as an enemy but as a child of God, you must turn like I have to Christ. Give yourself to Christ. Believe in Christ. Live for Christ. And then when you die, your life would not be in vain, but you would gain the very treasure and the very precious jewel of your life, which is Christ. So your life is to be lived in the midst of the context of this world who will see it and come to see and know Christ because of it. So those three exhortations are to examine, resolve, and testify. Our whole lives, friends, must be spent to this end. Our goals, our ambitions, our expectations, our plans laid, must be that we would follow Christ. 
Whatever track and path he has placed us on, whether it leads to death or old age, must be to the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for Jesus and his calling each one of us. Lord, you sent him to die, and in his death he has ransomed each one of us from sin. And in so doing, Lord, he has reconciled all those who by faith look upon the cross for the forgiveness of their sins to you. And we are now children, sons and daughters of God and have and receive the many blessings of being numbered among the family of God. Would our lives then reflect that truth? Help us, Lord, to know and be convicted of this truth that we may live in faithful obedience and ardent zeal and a true, willing, sacrificial life that honors you in all things. We will fail, God, but you have sent your Son and your Spirit to teach us, to sustain us, and to guide us. We pray now as we continue to sing in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.